Hello everyone and welcome back to the Aviation Spotters Podcast. I am your host, Colin, and this is episode 10. Yes, we have made it 10 episodes of this podcast, and I cannot thank you all enough for your support of this podcast. And as always, I hope you guys enjoyed last week's episode with Owen. I thought it was a very good interview with him and a great discussion and a very interesting guy he is. And make sure to go check out his his pages and his Instagram and you guys, you won't be disappointed. Because this is episode 10, I thought I would do something special. My guest today reached out to me in the very beginning of the podcast and he said, I am willing to come on and talk about being on both sides of the cockpit. Yes, both sides of the cockpit. So it is my pleasure to introduce United States Air Force Major Mark Callendine, F-15E Strike Eagle Wizzo, call sign Durfum. Durfum, how you doing this morning? Hey, Colin, I'm doing pretty well. You, you left out uh, amateur photographer, I guess, as well. I'm, I'm still learning at it, but uh, I'm a better Wizzo, thankfully. <laughs> well, you know... I've seen some of your photos that you sent me, and they don't look amateurish. They look absolutely professional, and man, I can't thank you enough for agreeing to come on and doing this, and just reaching out to me at the very beginning. That really did mean a lot. Yeah, I'm uh, really excited. So uh, it's been good to listen to the podcast, and it's really cool to get the perspective from, I guess, the spotters. And you know, I, you know, we kind of look sometimes and see what what's out there in terms of photos and everything, and. Uh, it's been really cool for the community. Also talk to some different air crew and everything like that and just learn a little bit about that. So, uh, I know we've always enjoyed some of the shots that you have of us. Uh, yeah, it was really awesome when you guys came home from your recent deployment. Uh, I was sitting outside the base and I had my American flag out there and I remember I got, I got a wave from a Wizzo and then I realized like that was you actually that gave me the wave, which is always pretty cool. Yeah, and uh, we, we stopped through Lake and Heath on the way back as well, and there's a really cool community at Lake and Heath. I saw a lot of photos. I, I ended up becoming a good friends with one of, the, one of the spotters out there as well, just through the course of, you know, you know Instagram and social media. So it's been it's really, really neat to see those uh, perspectives as, as well. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And it's always great where we're all able to interact with each other. And, and my main thing is when I go out to the base to take photos of the of you guys is, you know, get you guys those photos. So, you know, you guys will have them and show your family and your kids and, you know, later down down the road and have them for your grandkids or whatnot to see. And, you know, I, I really do enjoy doing that for you guys so much. Well, anyway, man, let's uh, let's get started. So let's start out getting to know you a little bit. So uh, where are you from? And let's just talk about the photography stuff. So how did you get into photography? Oh, okay. So uh, first of all, I've always been into photography. And I guess I have to give a standard caveat that uh, these are all Durfum Mark's opinions here today. But uh, uh, <laughs> just in case I say something off script. Anyways, all my opinions on this today here. But getting into photography, I have always kind of been interested in photography. Uh Back in high school, I had like a Sony Cybershot, which it sounds like a lot of people when, you know, talking, listening to your other guests, it's just started out with like a little, you know, $100 point and shoot camera and then just kind of evolved as yeah. went on there. I was always taking photos, uh, you know, all the different sports events, things like that. And then after I graduated school, I ended up getting a, uh, my first DSLR, which was a Sony Alpha 77. And I had that for about 10 years up until I just replaced it with a, uh, with a camera I have now. Uh, and I didn't 
you know, I took photos uh, going on trips and traveling, and I took some photos on my first deployment, but I really didn't get into it until the last uh, essentially year or so. Uh, so that's, that's kind of my background with the photography side. From an aviation side, when I was growing up, I traveled a bunch as a kid, so I was always in commercial airports and loved airplanes and didn't really think about it as a career, but those have always been kind of background interest to me that uh, it's kind of fun. It's, it's very fun now to, <clears throat> excuse me, very fun now to be melding those interests together. Yeah, absolutely. And it's always cool to have two major hobbies intertwine with each other, um, with your love for aviation, your love for photography. So going back to your camera real fast. So the A7, that's a mirrorless camera, right? It is. I was deployed uh, in October and then got back this summer with all the COVID things. Uh, you and I have talked about that. But uh, partially mm -hmm. through there, I decided, hey, I've got some extra spending money. And I got this Sony A7R4, which is their mirrorless. So a lot of people I know, they're Canon Nikon. But for some reason, again, brand loyalty or something, I, I just I had a Sony Cybershot and just kept going with it. And uh the mounts changed, so it kind of changed what lenses I had, but I just went for it right off the bat. I know that's, uh, you know, it's very much a treat. I don't have a lot of expensive things, but I, I just went for it with the camera, and I, I don't regret it because of how versatile it's been in terms of uh, at least taking photos from a flying perspective, uh, where it's made, it's made a huge difference for that. But the mirrorless has been really nice. Um, I'm not a full expert on it, but the stability of it and its ability to shoot pretty quickly has been great. And uh, it's also like 61 megapixels, which is ridiculous. It is so hard to edit photos because it just crushes the computer I have for it. So I'll just be, the editing process is not very fun, but the ability to save a lot of images uh, that otherwise I wouldn't be able to recover uh, has been great from like a crop factor. Yeah, absolutely. Seventy, got sixty-two megapixels. That is, that is insane. I didn't realize that the the resolution of that camera was so high. There was there was a couple times I'm taking photos, and you know the the other jet might be a couple thousand feet away, and I'm just able to look at these details. Uh, you know what someone has on, or something about them, or on the panels to the jet themselves that has been. It's pretty ridiculous. You can actually, I don't know how to do it, but you can stitch things together to make a 200 megapixel photo. If you, I think maybe if you're at the Grand Canyon or something, but uh, it is it is quite, a, it's a lot. And uh, again, it's been able to save a lot of images based on range essentially for me. That's super cool that you're able to do do that sort of stuff. And you know, going back to like when you kind of splurge on your camera, it's like one of those things where you're going to get so much use out of it and it will just repay its, itself eventually, you know, the amount of times you've used it and just in this, all that stuff. I know for me, when I got my new setup, you know, I, I've already, it, I use that thing every single day, you know, it's always with me. And it's just like one of those things where I'm, I want, you know, you want to invest some money in so you can get some epic shots like, you know, like, like yours and all that. I think, I think part of it is, you know, just with the iPhones coming out and I had that Sony, that old Sony DSLR for a long time and I would just be dragging it around, uh, you know, on hiking trips at tourist spots and I just never pulled it out of the bag. And I was always just taking photos of my yeah. iPhone and it just kind of, I started to use it less and less. But now that I have this camera here, uh, just based on what I can get out of it, I, I do, you know, I, I, 
keep it in the trunk of the car. I bring it out. You never know when there's going to be an occasion for something, uh, especially out here. Uh, you know, it's nice. You and I are both in Idaho, so very beautiful state, a lot of things to do. It's been great for that aspect. Yeah, agreed. And how how is the the how is the mirrorless camera for like landscape shots and, and action shots? Because I know a lot of people are thinking about going mirrorless right now because it's a you know the Canon just announced their new mirrorless and Nikon with theirs and you know so for the people that want to go mirrorless, kind of what are the pros and cons of it? So I think in a lot of aspects, and again, um, it's probably a draw for most people based on what they like or what they're comfortable with. Uh, what worked out for me very well, like I said, was the essentially the stabilization of it. I, I guess the big factor from it, uh, you know, I'm not, again, pretty amateur, so I'm, I was just kind of sussing out a little bit of what the differences are for it. And uh, obviously, without that mirror, the camera is much smaller, which is very nice for me taking it around, which has been good. You know, whether it's packing it, you know, in a helmet bag or just going on a hike or something, that the power for the size factor is pretty good. I think everything else, I think yeah. if you resolution, things like that, I think it might be a little better with some of the video and just how it digitally processes things. That that's that aspect of it. But uh, I think you can't go wrong with any of these any of them out there. Yeah, yeah. You know, my dad was you know like going mirrorless and all that, and Canon has a mirrorless lens, a one hundred to five hundred f stop. It's like a seven point one f stop, but still, is I kind of wish they would scale that down to the EF mount. But hey, beggars can't be choosers at this point. So, <laughs> so also now with your other side, also became a weapon system officer. So how did you become a Wizzo then? What's the story behind that? So a lot of people I think you'll talk to and a lot of the guys and gals that um, you know are out there and they tell their story, they have always wanted to do that since they might have been six years old. And that's not my story. Mm -hmm. And I do like that aspect of it because you know I kind of fell into it and I grew to love it. So I always loved aviation, but I never thought I would work in it. I went to school in DC and I was expecting to get into politics or international relations. My sophomore year, I did ROTC at uh, Detachment 130 at Howard, which was a crosstown school, the host unit for uh, where I went at American. So all the DC schools went there. And it's an HBCU, old university. It was a really cool experience. So I just, sophomore year, I just gave it a try. And I knew that I could walk away if I didn't want to. I did enjoy it. I thought I was just going to be an intel officer or something for four years and then get into, you know, maybe State Department or something like that. But uh, come senior year, they offered aviation slots. And I basically wasn't thinking about it. And I just kind of said yes to it. And part of my logic to it was that flying for the Air Force might be one of those only windows or opportunities that comes up at this point. Like if I wanted to be a lawyer, doctor, whatever, you could always do that later in life. This has a very finite window, so I just kind of said yes to that option. And that's how I started out with that. Okay. So it's just kind of this, like a spur of the moment thing, you know, it's like this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, so it's either you're going to take it or leave it. And and I think you took it, and I don't think you've looked back since, And right? Yeah. No, my story is also weird, too, because I actually had a pilot slot starting out, which you know, I think a lot of my friends that I work with don't even know that, but... I said yes to this pilot slot, wow. and uh, it was in 2010, 2011, and you had to go to this thing, initial flight screening. It's now a training, but they had it as a screening program. 
So I, I spent the whole summer waiting to interactive duty. I was working at McDonald's, you know, back where I grew up in Ohio. I'm waiting to, you know, I'm an Air Force officer, uh, you know, but I'm in reserve status and I'm waiting to come on active duty. I come on active duty and I go to this flight screening that they had in Colorado. And I'm just, I'm just terribly airsick actually the whole time. And I remember being, you know, I remember getting actually airsick when I was a kid, you know, on a airliner flying across the Pacific and uh, which is a weird thing to try and say, but I thought I would get over it. And uh, it really didn't work out for me on that pilot side for that. I just could not focus on, you know, landing and doing stuff with that. So I was like, okay, my aviation dreams, any of that, you know, and I didn't enjoy the experience particularly. So I was like, okay, I said yes to it. Didn't, we don't, you know, not working out here. Good. I'm just going to go back again, try and be an intel officer, a logistics officer or something and do, do my service and uh, do well at it. However, I had the option to, they said, well, you know, procedurally like checklists and your knowledge was good. Obviously the flying wasn't up to snuff in the time frame they wanted. And I truly believe anyone can learn to fly just given enough time and by extension money. Uh, but that program kind of is supposed to get that in very narrow window. So I actually reclassed then to be a combat systems officer, uh, the old navigator career field. And then I went to Pensacola for flight school there. Mm -hmm. And actually, yes, I still got completely airsick a bunch there. I did not get over airsickness <laughs> until, honestly, maybe one year of flying the Strike Eagle in ops. So even in the B course and everything. Wow. So I had several years of it. So if anyone listening that's interested in flying or doing stuff like that, don't let those things dissuade you. There's a lot of things that we have that are invisible scripts or barriers to doing this kind of job that are, are very... There's a lot of different scripts and things that might prevent you from doing this sort of job that are easily overcome with just some hard work and just asking from people how to how to do it. So, I mean, that was my struggle or challenge with it. But that did impact how I felt about the job. But now that I've been I've been doing it, you know, I've been in operational squadron for nearly seven years now. I, I really love it and I'm really passionate about it and uh, to be an instructor and to um, have two deployments and go out there every day. It's, it is, it is fun. It's sometimes you forget that when you're in the, the day-to-day -day grind, but, uh, you know, some of the conversations we have, you, you forget how fun and cool it can be and how rewarding it can be. Yeah. That's an amazing story you have. I mean, that's a really, really unique in how you be able to overcome the air sickness and just, excuse my cliche, but you know, you kept riding the bull and you know, now you're just having the time of your life. You're having, you know, it's just, it's not, it's, it's sometimes, yes, it's, you know, take a step back and saying, you know, this is, this is the life in a way, right? It's, that's just a really cool story that you have. Oh, my voice is crushed right there. You know, that's just a really cool story that you, that you have. And, you know, a lot of people can take a lot of inspiration from that. And there's a lot of people like me, you know, they're aspiring uh, fighter pilots or just pilots in general. And there's a lot of hurdles that they have to jump and a lot of stuff that may disqualify them for that. And you just can't get yourself down. And you just have to take the leap of faith, take the test, put in the hard work. And that you know, the effort will all pay off hopefully one day for, for the uh, aspiring person like that. Yeah, there are a lot of people that want to help. Uh, I, and the Air Force is doing some really great stuff with trying to 
you know, break down those barriers, increase diversity in the force as well. Uh, but there's like so many myths when I, I talk to just like the average person or you're at an air show, whether it's like, uh, do you have to have perfect vision? No, you don't. Plenty of people have had LASIK or eye surgery done. We have a lot of great women pilots and wizzos, and they'll be in an air show and people don't realize that women can fly combat aircraft still. And to me, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy for, you know, I think probably for you and I as, as younger people to even think that that's a thing, but it is, uh, it is something that some people have in their mind and, and it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting. I think it's very difficult to break into this field unless you've probably been wanting to do it since you've been six years old. Uh, there's just so many prerequisites and steps that you don't even know about. And, uh, it's unfortunately that makes a very large barrier. I think they're trying to do good things to change it, but it's still very much, it's very difficult. Um, waivers and medical and, and the other people are the gatekeepers that aren't necessarily the flyers, um, out there. Yeah. I mean, I'm on a Facebook group kind of to, you know, a lot, it's a lot of pilots and whizzos and like of other, a lot of, you know, flying officers that are on there and they're here to like to help, you know, ask, you know, people ask questions and they respond the best they can and all that. And, um, you know, shout out to all the, mountain home women over there i i know some of them i've seen them fly and just in the in the back seats as well and man those are some <laughs> badass women over there man and shout out to all of them over there there's i know there's a lot of them i can't name them all but you know shout out to all of them you guys are you guys can send it and it's freaking awesome to go out there and watch you guys do it yeah we did a we did a girl power photo shoot day so i i i did i uh I think I took like 300 photos that day. It was really fun the first two hours. The last hour was pretty painful, but uh, they were all messing around. It was, it was really <laughs> fun, and uh, it, was, it was really cool to uh, highlight that. We also had our um, maintainers and a couple other women just across the squadron come out, too, for that. And uh, it was a really cool day, That and, and we had a great commander that kind of sponsors and promotes that sort of stuff. Yeah, and it's, and it's awesome, man. Uh, pretty awesome people are at mountain home anyway let's take, let's take it back to the uh the, to the photography section let's, let's kind of run to the basic aviation spotter podcast questions and then we can move it on to the other stuff which i know a lot of people want to hear but you know let's just kind of um you know just just talk about yeah that's sounds cool great you. all right cool man so we already established that you're you, know, you, you were growing up using a point and shoot, you know, kind of like everybody else did and all that. And you currently use a Sony mirrorless and all that. So what is your favorite airplane in general? <laughs> besides the Strike Eagle, besides obviously. Besides the Strike Eagle. So, uh, so I actually still need to get a good uh, telephoto lens so I can come out and join you outside like BOI or something. So I'm looking at some of these 150 to 600 or 200, 600, like Tamron or Sony lenses, but I don't have that. So it's very difficult for me to actually spot from the ground. And I kind of actually, yeah. now that I've been doing this uh, or taking photos from the jet, it actually made me understand like the love of spotting and trying to catch them all, if you will, with all these different jets that come through. Like I'll be, I'll even be driving on the base and be like, that would be a super cool shot right now as I'm driving home yeah. to Boise. Or driving by the airport, especially uh, up here. My favorite jets to shoot than that would be probably other military aircraft. So the only other jets I've really taken some photos of were some uh, uh, French Rafales out there, uh, well deployed. Uh, but I'm, I'm, you know, like I love some of your uh, uh, commercial photos too. I'm not opposed to that. Like especially, 
I think we had a triple seven come through Boise, uh, and that, which yep. is not which is pretty unusual. And uh, so I, I do like that commercial aviation side. So I don't know if I have a new favorite besides the Strike Eagle yet, though. But uh, I'm kind of curious as I get deeper into the into the into the hobby. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we had a triple seven here because the one twenty fourth fighter wing is coming home from their deployment currently, and they brought in a triple seven three hundred ER, which I don't think, I mean, I, I don't think I've seen one in Boise, but Boeing probably sent one in for testing back when it was being developed, like they normally do. But seeing the most powerful jet engines take off is just absolutely insane to see. It's it's a whole different this ball game when you're just watching a, a GE90 scream past you at probably not full tilt, but still. What about... So you've taken some some pretty. Uh, so you said you took some photos of some French Raffles, and I know you sent me some uh, photos that you take privately and all that. And so with you being in in a theater like that, you know what was some of the rarest aircraft that you've seen before? So the rarest aircraft probably has to be Russian aircraft <laughs> because we're operating up there yeah. in Iraq and Syria and the Russians are transiting through and Syrian aircraft and uh, geopolitically and just operationally, it was super weird at one point to be flying underneath, you know, Russian fighters and you can see that blue paint scheme and this is what you train against all the time, but we're just both there together, both being, you know fighter aviators just doing our jobs essentially uh so unfortunately no photos there but uh, from an experience that was the coolest thing to visually um see out there and it was good to just work with other players um you know different airframes rotate through whether it's uh coalition partners like the germans french other nato allies or just even units like uh like some of our F-35 friends from Hill and just being out there at the same time, having done exercises together or meeting them before and then to go fly with them uh, in a deployed environment was just an awesome experience. Man, so you got to actually intercept Russian aircraft. Yeah, so it's just a, I mean, it's just geopolitics are very weird. So there's just this cat and mouse game that is going on over there between us and them, to be honest. There's lines on a map that different people have drawn up and people people send jets to intercept each other both them and us about where people are in relation to lines and power signals and what that means and again as an aviator you're you're out there just doing it i I study international relations so it's very interesting to me from that perspective to think about that strategically and to academically write on that and then be out there as like the operator uh flying in it but uh yeah, there's different areas, or a lot of it, when we did our most recent deployment, was protecting U.S. bases or forces throughout the region. And if you get too close, we're going to come say hi to you. And again, if they felt we got too close to their line, they were going to come say hi to us. Yeah, I actually, people don't know this about me, but I actually got a degree in international relations as well. So we could probably pull <laughs> another discussion on geopolitical situations right now but this is the aviation spotters podcast <laughs> the geopolitical podcast so we'll save that one for for another day um so so it's the airspace is just so 
packed over that theater, I guess, and just a lot of deconfliction has to happen to make sure, you know, something doesn't happen with coalition or, or other um, aircraft in the airspace. Yeah, right? and I, uh, I have done some stints at uh, air operations centers, and, you know, those headquarter units are the ones that, you know, the American general, the coalition general, they're talking to the Russian generals, and they're having diplomatic, you know, agreements and, and packs about how that goes, and then, of course... Like anything else, you know, people get concerned that the other person is violating the agreement or the intent or the spirit of it. And it was just a very, I can't even speak to the things change so rapidly, uh, especially in the Central Command CENTCOM area, the Middle East, that even just getting home a couple months ago, whatever is going on there now, I would probably not be able to speak to it because it's just such a rapidly changing environment. And we saw that quite a bit from when we were out there just yeah. from... Um, kind of October to June, whether it's uh, withdrawals from Syria. So we, there's areas we'd fly that, you know, we would no longer go anymore just based on the political side uh, to the different threat environments, um, the Iran stuff that happened. Uh, all of those things uh, really just impacted your day-to-day. -day. So when people talk about like, oh, I'm going to go on a deployment, like you never know what you're going to get out of that experience for a lot of the young air crew that's going to go out there, or even the old guys too. Um, it's, it's a lot of being prepared for everything. I mean, I've, I've read some stuff about the whole deconfliction process and all that over there, and it's it's pretty well well uh, documented and well, I say not well documented, but like well well done and all that between you know the russians in the u.s and all that but when you intercepted those russian aircraft do you remember what type they were they had they had several different um su-34s and su-35s that were out there different transport aircraft so again i mean there's i mean just seeing a flanker in real life with that blue and white paint scheme orbiting around you very different than when i deployed in 2016 2017 where the, the, the isis stuff was going on and they were doing a lot of stuff um, counter ISIS as well, and it was very different in that in that sense. There was less of that deconfliction process that was established uh, there. Okay, that's pretty cool to to see, and it's you know it's it's pretty funny going to Nellis and seeing the F-16s painted up like like flankers and and um, fulcrums and stuff like that. And I bet it's a little bit different when you see the real deal for the first time. I think so. It's, it's part of it is like, I don't, you know, you don't think anything will happen because the politics of the situation were both just there, but you can't not discount that mm -hmm. possibility that today's the day. And it's, uh, I think for a lot of other folks that have had that happen, it, it's, it's really, it's really interesting. It's just, again, you know, this, this, you know, these different threats that you've been trained to, or everyone brings up since you started your flying career, you're out there in real life orbiting around together. It's, it's very surreal is honestly the best word to use for it. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. That's, I mean, if, if, if you know, I were to see some, something Russian here for the first time, I've only seen it in photos and all that, and just, you know, somehow lands at Boise or even Mountain Home for that matter for some reason, it's, I'll just kind of be like, kind of sit there for a second, I'm going like, holy crap, <laughs> this just happened, <laughs> you know. But, um, well, I think that's a, uh, a good lead-in to some of the next uh, questions is, well, you already kind of told us a story about, you know, you intercepting Russian stuff. So let's kind of move it on to, I think the part where kind of everybody wants to, wants to talk about. So, um, 
the photos from the cockpit. So look, this is kind of kind of get a background is. Um, so people that don't know what a a weapon system officer or a WIZO is, so can you just kind of let's kind of give a brief explanation of, of what a WIZO is and kind of job duties of a WIZO. So if you think about fighters, we don't really have many two place jets. So our you know our Hornet friends, the Navies, uh, you know they go back. You know think about the Tomcat, your Goose and Maverick, your radar intercept officer. So Strike Eagles have a WIZO weapon systems officer, and that goes back to our heritage with the F four days as well. Actually, the history of it, for those who don't know, also goes back to Vietnam and that date that as well with F-4s, where uh, basically they put two pilots in the two-cockpit jet, one to help run the radar. Uh, they eventually called the, the other pilot like the guy in the back, and then they realized after a bit that they don't, it doesn't need to be a fully qualified or rated pilot for that. So that kind of fighter navigator or that career field took that role for it. So Wizzos uh, have kind of existed in that fighter role. They also use that term for some of the different bomber platforms as well. For anyone that kind of operates uh, weapon systems, you know, we're talking about like radar and targeting pod and helping manage stuff. So jets have this uh, thing where there's like a, a, a workload ratio, if you look at it. And the Strike Eagle, based off of the workload ratio, Hornets as well, that's something that's more conducive to having a two-place uh, cockpit. I don't know how much that will stick around or go away. Uh, we, you know, we were talking about EX before the show started. I think Wizzos will continue to do that. It's definitely an interesting career field, and it's an interesting dynamic. A, a lot of single-seat guys and gals don't really understand it. They think of it like when they're going through pilot training and they've got someone in the back judging and yelling, and it's not like that. It's, it's a lot more fun to be working with someone else together, to have two minds, two sets of eyeballs, working to solve a problem and to f divide the focus up so traditionally, we talk about like the pilots focusing on air to air, and the wizards can then focus on like the air to ground uh, mission for that. Yeah, I knew the 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 Phantoms had the the Rio, if that was correct. I know the the Tomcats like a bracket as well. So I know this the Strike Eagle itself was designed for a like a more air to ground role than the Legacy air to air Eagle. So they needed somebody in the back to take up, you know the whole uh, extra workload. Like yeah, and you the said, role right? has changed quite a bit as technology changes. There's, uh, if anyone's interested, there's this book, like Strike Eagles in the Gulf War, and it's, it's about how, like, in in that time period, how they started out before they even got, like, laser-guided bombs or anything. But the role of the, the pilot and Wizzo were very different. Uh, as, as things have changed, I mean, the, the jet itself has changed quite a bit. So, you know, the iron is the same, but it's just, like, upgrading the parts in a computer that the jet is completely different than how you think about it during those days as well. So as more systems have gone on, like uh, Wizzos used to run the radar during air-to-air -air, uh, intercepts back in the day, kind of going back to that legacy, but now we have the pilots run the radar, uh, Wizzos run other different systems, look for defensive threats and things like that. As each iteration of like almost loading a new software version of Windows comes onto the jet, different roles and responsibilities kind of change and emerge there. Okay. That makes, that makes a lot more sense now because, you know, warfare has changed and it's a lot more, a lot more in depth and technical than it was, you know, 50 years ago in Vietnam and actually even maybe a couple of years, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago in Gulf War with the, you know, the Strike Eagle was, you know, in the Gulf War. And I, I believe that the aircraft has changed just along. Yeah, there's a mission. story that people talk about where the, the chapter of the tactics manual said that the Strike Eagle does not do close air support from back in the 2000s. And now 
we do that quite a bit. And that just shows how it's been used in different uh, environments and conflicts from it. And there's a couple, I don't have a couple good stories on, you know, Strike Eagles responding to ticks, troops in contact, and danger close situations where just our ability to have a high on station time due to gas and weapon payload makes us uh, requested by the uh, commanders out there in the field. Yeah, and especially having the Strike Eagles based in Idaho along with the A-10, you know, I don't think you have two aircraft that complement each other more than we, those uh, There two. was a time when I was deployed previously where Idaho A-10s were out there as well. Some of our C-2 folks were from Idaho, so we just joked it was Idaho goes to war against ISIS, and we were out there as well. And it was really <laughs> awesome working and integrating with them, and the A-10 is an awesome cast platform and is very different and we were able to just to be in the stack as we call it with the different airplanes stacked up on each other uh working with uh jtacs uh joint terminal air controllers calling in strikes um against isis uh different weapons and their gun ability and what we were doing was uh it was really amazing when that all kind of comes together in a, in one uh, kind of defining moment yeah it's just it's kind of like when X meets Y and it just equals Z, you know, like you, you, you know stuff's about to happen when, when those two aircraft and when just everything just goes well, you know, there's going to be some. <laughs> and some it's, it's kind of the same with uh, when you have a good two, you know, you've, you have two jets going out there, four people and both crews, the pilots and Wizzos, even across the formation are just simpatico. Uh, your ability to just have awareness of the battle space, to target weapons, and to coordinate with outside agencies. We have three radios in the jets. That ability to do so, I think, is what... Uh, I, I guess that's why I'm proud to be a Wizzo, is doing some stuff like that. Uh, so no matter what uh, C-Model guys might say or joke, well, Viper guys are probably the worst about it, but <laughs> it's super fun, and, uh, and uh, I think it brings a lot to it. So especially... You know, I, I can think of some different missions where, like, as a Wizzo, I'm super proud for, you know, finding some, there's some ISIS guys, and they had these blankets on to try and hide from our thermal imagery, and just being able to find and spot these guys that were doing some nasty things to uh, civilians in, like, Mosul back in the day. That's the stuff I'm proud about doing or able to help contribute to to that as a, as a Wizzo. And yeah. it's, it's been it's been really fun. I, I like the role. I, I don't mind not driving, to be honest, sometimes, and uh, doing that. Yeah, you just kind of sit back in the back and relax a little bit, and then, you know, when the time comes, it's all game face time, and here we go, right? Yeah, and for us, too, the Wizzo usually talks to the uh, to the JTAC and does some of that coordination. Uh, well, the pilots do some of that air-to-air -air coordination, tanker cord, so it's, it's a lot of fun in that. Also, I mean... I'm basically an incentive flyer when we do some training red airlines. Uh, I'd be safety observer, but uh, uh, like you're saying, if it comes to photos, driving home, that that's always been the time where I was able to snap a shot or two uh, just because, again, I'm not driving. So yeah, uh, it's been fun. I have some friends. I think a, fr a friend of mine is a, you might know her as a, as a photographer in the Tigers, but she's a pilot, so she won't have the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I actually got a photo of her uh, flexing at a red flag the other day, believe it or not. <laughs> So I'm gonna send. I'm I'm gonna have a big group of big folder. I'm sending all the tigers in, in about a week or so. Well, after you know, it's by the time this airs, hopefully they all have them by now. But yeah, that was that was fun at the flag. But man, that's a great lead-in to the next kind of segment is just photos from the cockpit. You know, for, like like how do you 
the gift had permission to take photos from the cockpit. I know there's a lot of sensitive stuff on there that we're not obviously going to get into in this. But, you know, like for you, like, not just being able to take them from the cockpit, like, like how is it? Like, do you have to like, deal with, like, turbulence, like, like, like dirty air and, and all this other stuff? And with, even with a canopy, too like like how do, how does that all work so on the first portion is yeah you don't uh yeah there's social media stuff like that so um you don't see a lot of pictures in the cockpits because we are rightfully pretty strict about that yeah. sort of thing uh and so that i had a really supportive uh commander and we were able to get these for essentially taking like a deployment historical videos and photography for that so i i got to sit down and edit a bunch of photos and put together a nice cool video uh, for our uh, our party, our get our welcome home party once COVID ends, so maybe next year. I don't know. Uh, so I've got a lot of editing in my future, but I got memos and the paperwork signed to do that, and it was really awesome that um, again someone was supportive to do that, and the end result has been nice too. We actually have some of these photos up in our building uh, as well, so that was really nice to get some of my photos uh, blown up on canvas, and uh, that's where that megapixels that resolution came in well. So. Uh, they're kind of decorating the halls of our, our renovated building, our squadron. Okay. That's pretty cool. Yeah, if you guys ever need photos, uh, I'm more than happy to, to pitch in with that also. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be the, the, the BOI spotter gallery uh, wing of yeah. the uh, building. We can, we can put that up. Uh, man, hopefully I can get you guys low level too, man. I, I, you guys need some low level shots and uh, oof, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all to help about the low level stuff, but... I yeah. saw some great photos of the Tigers on the uh, the famous VR thirteen fifty five route um, that I, I saw some spotter take that was really beautiful shots. Uh, and I know that's where they did the Top Gun two filming was on that. We were actually flying that day, and uh, they were you know the chase camera the chase jets were out, but someone pulled some strings. They they wouldn't let us fly the low level because they're doing filming. I know exactly we who you're talking about. I... Yes. I know exactly. I know exactly you're talking about. I actually had to, had a beer with him after a Spini flight last year. So, okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I know. I I heard that story and I, yeah. Just watch closely, people. During that scene, you might see three strike eagles fly through it. From <laughs> um, uh, the Dave jet, Honan, uh, yeah. Dave Honan. Sorry to interrupt, but. Uh, Dave Honan, that's the guy who takes all those photos up there on a 1355 up near Rimrock Lake. Uh, shout out Dave Honan. Go check him out. Find him. Trust me, he's a great guy. He's one of my good friends. You won't be disappointed if you find him. Hopefully, I'll be able to get him here on the podcast very, very soon. Anyway, sorry to interrupt, Mark. Oh, no, yeah. Dave's photos of the Jets and the Hornets going to the lake are just beautiful, beautiful shots. So, uh, yeah, I think I, I that's who it is. I do follow him on uh, Instagram for that. Um, in the Jet, is it is difficult. Uh, I actually did a flight in uh, 2016 or so, and there was an aviation photographer. His name is Jim Hazeltine. He came out, and he did the photos for, like, the wing. So we got all the different Jets, flagship Jets out there, a tanker. We flew up to Stanley. And Jim had his setup, and I think that's what kind of planted in my brain the idea to take more photos while flying. So it was amazing to watch him, because you don't see a lot of advice for that online if you're, if you're just looking for some of that photography uh, expertise. And he had like lens hoods, everything like that. But I found that, yeah, the glare has always been the biggest issue. Uh, again, 
I'm not driving, so I'm just in the back seat. I got my body twisted. I got my harness on. I got a helmet. I'm putting my visor up so I can look through the viewfinder. And it's super bright out up there. I got my, you know, the lens as close as I can to the canopy to minimize glare. And we are also kind of telling the other jet what to do in terms of their formation position to try and get a good shot, especially so... I was really happy. We got some retirement flags flown for people, and we got to have pictures of those flags in the jet over the desert, um, some stuff like that. But that has always that's been a very difficult issue uh, with that. Now, the lens I have when I fly is this Tamron twenty-eight to seventy-five, so it's not you know it's not this high-powered lens for it, um, and that's why being able to crop down was very it was critical to get some of the shots I was able to get from it. And the speed, I think, of the mirrorless as well. Uh, I think I took about 3,600 photos over the six-month period I had the camera there. Wow. And a lot of it is just because there's just so much with flying that little bumps or movement, um, it was even more important to kind of rapidly take those shots. A lot of times I did shoot on either an auto or uh, aperture mode just to... Uh, just to just to get what I wanted out of it. Just, there's so many different changing conditions with the light and everything. The biggest one I messed up was the ISO setting when uh, there's some photos of us and with some French jets. And, you know, we're it's lucky enough that the timing works out that we are both in the same piece of sky to, like, go home together. Uh, which, you know, I always look at the schedule and see who would be around and maybe, maybe I can get them that day. So it's sunset, it's a beautiful purple sky, they rejoin on us, um, taking photos of each other, just waving at our, our, our other pilots, and uh, we got to meet with them, so that was very cool as well, to talk with them and socialize with them. I had such a high setting in there that when I, I reviewed it, you know, flying back, and I was like, oh, these are real grainy and noisy, like these are not, I thought they were going to be special. <laughs> we had to redo the whole thing, essentially, like guys come back in take another whole round of photos and everything. So that was really, there was a lot of lessons learned. I, I, I think I really, just the amount I learned just from taking that many photos was, uh, it goes to the adage about just practicing and just shooting. And I, I tried to do that more and more. And I, I was really pleased with my own progression uh, with that. I can vouch for you on that with the whole graininess and all that. Cause when I first started shooting, I really didn't understand ISO and stuff like that as well. And you know, it took me a couple times to really understand like the depth of field and the ISO and the graininess and the noise and all that good stuff. And man, one day it just came and bit me really good because we had like a, it was a German A310 came in during a mountain roundup 2013 in the Boise to pick some stuff up. And of course, you know, this blown out and grainy and all that. So I learned my lesson quickly <laughs> after that. Um, Anyway, like I said, I'm never, I'm never seen not playing here ever again. Actually, I've never seen a period anywhere ever again. So it's like kind of, that was a once in a lifetime shot, and and I blew it. It makes you not make that mistake again, though, because I was so diligent after about that um, to just try and check that. So I, I just kept it really low, and I just kind of fixed the exposure essentially in Lightroom just based off of what I was seeing airborne with that. Just, just because yeah. I knew I need, I just had to have that really crisp resolution for how I, I knew I had to crop this photo down with some of these jets being a couple thousand feet away and uh, everything. So, so that, and then I, I, there was another time too, where I'm just like fumbling between like memory cards getting full and trying to switch to the other memory card in the camera. 
and we're flying back and we need to eventually like we need to start doing administrative stuff and kind of you know we only i only did this during like a you know a safe or quiet period to fly like yeah. on the way home and it's like well it's too late we're gonna hit this point and then i need to focus on my primary duties and and get back at it so i'm just rushing i'm like we got one minute till we get to this point here before i need to start getting the the ILS and the nav aid set up to get home. Uh, so uh, yeah, a couple moments like that that were kind of fun uh, in retrospect as a, as a photographer. Yeah. It just takes those couple minutes to make a photo that's going to last a lifetime. You know, I understand, you know, you guys are doing your thing. You guys come back, maybe you have five or so minutes just to do some stuff and you know, then it's go home time and then, then all that sort of stuff. But that's, that's really cool that you're able to do that. I know there's a, uh, uh, I follow, you know, some other of your squadron mates as well. I, I don't know some of them. I've seen the photos that, yeah, you, that you've taken of them and of the jets and all that. And man, dude, they are absolutely uh, stunning and amazing. And I, I, every time you post, I'm like, this is awesome. This is epic. Just because, you know, you have such a unique advantage over, I'm gonna say advantage. That's kind of the wrong word, but I mean, it's, you see, have a unique point. opportunity. Yeah, yeah, vantage point. Exactly. Yeah. Being in the cockpit, shooting one of the most badass fighters ever built, and other aircraft too, for that matter, from the cockpit. You know, in in a, in a in a setting that the normal person wouldn't would ever see them. So that's really, really, really cool. I, I had to think about that too, as well as it's a unique opportunity. And I don't shoot uh, back home station or anything like that. That was kind of just for the yeah. deployment and everything like that. So yeah, so every day going out there, it was something like this might be my one chance for today. Or when I had a couple flights on the deployment left, I'm like, well, what if I get from here is probably what I'm going to get for a large part of my air to air photography for a really long time. It's also funny too, is, you know, we would do the same thing where we we'd take off and we we hit a tanker, a KC-135 or a KC-10. And I mean, after a while, I was like, if I'm flying with the same group of people, I don't really want to even take my... I don't. I have enough photos of a, a Strike Eagle on a boom over and over again that yeah. I'm just going to eat my granola bar or something and <laughs> do other stuff I need to do in the jets or write some other different mission notes down. Um, yeah, it was always really cool if there's like a different... I always had it with me just in case. So if there's just a geographic area that'd be interesting, whether it's some of the lakes out there, the mountains in the northern part of Iraq, or just the, the desert of Syria, it was really fun to also take some photos flying back uh, as well. I didn't fly out on the deployment. I'd gone there early via C5 and flying back just over Europe and over Italy and the Mediterranean was, it was just a unique, you know, part of me wanted to stay and just take a like a airliner back just for some tax free money, but I was like, no, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to to do this deployment RTB. Uh, so I no regrets there. Yeah, it's you know like this is filled up with life is like you have forks in the road. It's like are you going to take it? Are you going to leave it? And you know it, the, that route will never come back again. And that sounds just you know flying across the world with a bunch of your friends in an F fifteen. I mean, that's just, it's just, it may not happen again. It could happen again, but you know, it's just like, got to take it by the horns and let it just ride. That's, that's awesome. It makes, uh, you know, our, our discussions though, like, I, you know, before the show started, we're talking, I have a 4 a.m. wake up to go fly tomorrow. I'm kind of grumpy about it. But again, talking to spotters, it, it does remind you again of, again, how 
privileged a lot of us are and how cool it is. And you, you, you forget that when you're just in this grind of work and, and the study and prep. And it's a lot of hard work for that. But um, that's why at least it actually kind of reinvigorated my like passion or love for flying a little more to then have that perspective. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, so real quick, do you have any like photography stories that you're willing to share with the, with the listeners? Oh, I think uh, from a photography story, I think I told most of them in terms of the you know, just struggling with uh, things there. I'm not really, uh, I guess I'm not really sure which one I should. Uh, photography stories, I don't have as much photography stories. Uh, okay, actually. Well, any stories in general. You're- sure. So one good photography opportunity I had was actually home station flying a couple years ago. And uh, are you, uh, Colin, are you familiar with the Bay Tour in San Fran? Yeah. Yeah. So for those that don't, there's this VFR route or ability where you can go into San Francisco Bay and you just go around the bay and you're, you're around the Class Bravo airspace there. So a couple strike eagles. We're doing a cross country. We're doing all sorts of training where we flew to Portland. We flew down to San Diego, El Centro. You know, it was fun to taxi by the Blue Angels and they're waving at you when they're out there training. And then... Uh, <laughs> We popped up to Moffett Field, and uh, on the way home from Moffett Field, um, we did the Bay Tour, and it was a beautiful morning, and so I did get these photos over the Golden Gate Bridge, and I, I really enjoyed those. Those were from my old camera, so the resolution is not as great, but it still worked out for a 24 by 36 to put up in the squadron. That's super, super, super cool. They- you got F-15s over the Bay, over the over like one of the most iconic American landmarks. That's that's pretty cool, man. <laughs> I'm jealous. I'm pretty jealous of that. <laughs> I really wish I had a camera when we did. We were flying over New York City for um, just like VIP protection, and just flying over like up and down the Long Island coast and seeing like One World Trade Center and Central Park and putting your targeting pod on Yankee Stadium. Like that was a really cool American <laughs> like Go USA thing to do. So. There's always been a couple little trips that we've gone on just throughout the years that besides deployments, uh, just around the country, it's been, the Air Force has taken me a lot of places around the country that I would not have gone otherwise. And uh, yeah, again, it's it's also kind of surreal as well to be doing that. That's pretty cool, man. Um, well, let's uh, start wrapping her up, man. Do you have any tips or words of encouragement for the, uh, for the listener out there? I mean, I think the biggest lesson I took and everyone says, and it's very true, is just to continue to take and shoot. I've also had some photos that as I got home, uh, especially from flying, that uh, giving it a good good attention and, and kind of taking your eye to it, uh, I was able to save quite a few in editing based on some of the lighting issues that I had from it. So I would say, again, look at everything. Again, go back to look at your work with the critical eye and, and don't get too bummed on it. I, I would get bummed a little, you know, sometimes where if I made those mistakes with the ISO setting or anything like that, and I'm like, I missed this opportunity uh, and just think of it as an improvement to learn from that. From the other side, I think if you're interested in aviation or whatever you're interested in, uh, there's a lot of barriers that are not as surmountable, just like we talked to. And uh, people uh, are more than willing and they would like to help to uh, to help people find that path. Yeah, I don't know. That's all, yeah. that's all I got right now. No, that's, that's, hey, anything helps. And I think, you know, we talked about it earlier in the show. I think that's a pretty encouraging discussion we had earlier on. Um, but um, anyway, man, Durfum, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've, I really do appreciate you reaching out to me early on and just all the time has passed as well. 
Uh, hopefully you are able to get a telephoto lens because I would love to take you out to my spots of mountain home so you can see how I see you guys from my perspective out there. Um, and hopefully one day in a couple of years, I might get to see my spot from your perspective um, if I get, get some slots that I'm hoping to get. So, but um, anyway, guys, this is the part of the show where I always say, if you know somebody who you think should come on and talk aviation with me on the show, send me an email to avspotterspodcast at gmail.com. Any questions for the show or comments, send them there as well. You can always shoot me a DM on Twitter, on Instagram, at BOI Spotter. And uh, Mark, speaking of Instagram and Twitter, uh, if you want, where can people find your work? So I don't have a photography page or anything. I just keep my... I have just a profile, my own personal profile, kind of my own hidden gem. You can follow me, reach out to me if you have a question at American Flyer, but uh, it's not all jet photos. You might see a photo of like a cat or uh, or my friends hanging out, but uh, <laughs> I do share usually some Strike Eagle Saturday pics there and, and a lot of photos of the, the ladies for Women Crush Wednesday. So uh, you'll see photos from that from time to time, but I'm more than happy to offer advice and essentially encouragement to anyone that's interested in career paths if they want to they can feel free to hit me up awesome guys and seriously take him up on that he is a wealth of information and if you have any questions about joining the uh the armed forces as a pilot or going that way there's a facebook there's a facebook group called make them tell you no go check it out there's a lot of people on there that want to help you out um they have helped me out so far in my in my path to do this um Durfim is here to help you out as well so send him a message as well if it interests you and all that uh, about that sort of stuff but um anyway guys that's going to do it for me here on episode 10 of the aviation spotters podcast and uh mark anything else to add no thanks thanks for having me on colin keep shooting oh i will man and uh thank you again for reaching out coming on and uh as i always say guys keep those batteries charged and those cameras ready and we'll catch you next time here on the aviation spotters podcast <laughs>